Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. There are nearly 20 million military vets in the U.S. And each week, we focus on their stories. This is CBS Eye on Veterans. Welcome to CBS Eye on Veterans, reporting for the military news and veteran lifestyle website, ConnectingVets.com. I'm Navy vet Phil Briggs, and today we're going to meet a veteran whose life defines the word sacrifice. And we'll hear from the founder of Building Homes for Heroes, who is devoted to bringing renewed hope to our nation's injured veterans, former Army Master Sergeant George Vera and Building Homes for Heroes founder Andy Pajol. Gentlemen, Andy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Phil. It's an honor to be here with you. And Master Sergeant, always good to see your face. How are you, sir? Good, sir. Thank you for having me here, Phil. Now, I'm glad we can share the good work Building Homes for Heroes is doing today, but let's start with that story of sacrifice. Master Sergeant, let's just go through some, you know, some of the highlight reels. Tell me about your time in the Army. What kind of, you know, what was your MOS? And uh, just tell me about some of the fun and interesting things you did. All right. So I started out as an 11 Bravo in the infantry. Um, I did that for about five years, and then I switched over to Special Forces Operator, uh, 18 Echo, which was a communications sergeant. From there, I basically spent almost my entire time in seven Special Forces groups. I also taught at the schoolhouse as a Special Forces instructor for the kids coming through. I have five combat deployments uh, to Afghanistan, and then another five deployments to the Republic of Colombia and South America. You know, it was the greatest job ever, uh, but eventually it ended and, you know, you had to grow up and, you know, continue on to do other things. So here I am today. Roger that. And uh, let me just kind of put some of that in layman's terms. We hear the words 11 Bravo and I just love it because you could just use the word grunt 
for that. I mean, it's <laughs> like the low enlisted guys that are really the backbone of the army and they do, uh, especially when it comes to combat operations, you know, they're like all unsung heroes. Your E3s, your E4s, your ground pounders out there that are good with weaponry, good with making stuff happen, good with getting the, getting the captain's orders done no matter what it takes. And then we hear the word special forces. What I love is the humility in which a lot of special forces guys do. You never hear them throw around the word green beret. Which is really what a special forces soldier is. And it's incredible what that unit does. The Rangers, you know, we all see in the Hollywood movies and everything, the direct action missions with the helicopter hovering and then the rappelling down and the door kicking in and everything exploding and the, you know, good guys winning and the bad guys running. And, 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 and that's kind of a Ranger battalion action. Green Berets do this interesting mission by, with, and through. Sometimes you guys are places for months at a time. And they are embedded. They're living out in the land, oftentimes wearing the tribal gear. Share with me an aha moment from your time with special forces. So there's, there's kind of two stories I always think about when that comes up. And it, and it one's in Colombia, uh, South America, and then the other one's in Afghanistan. You know, a lot of people, you know, realize, you know, Afghanistan, you know, it's mountainous, it's isolated. There's not a lot there. And that's basically the places where you're going to find, you know, special forces. By within through, like you said, there's been many times when you're, you know, in a certain country like Afghanistan and everything you're doing is with, you know, the people right there. And then the soldiers of like, you know, for example, Afghanistan, you know, they're right there cooking with you and doing everything with you. And I think that's a lot of the difference, like you kind of mentioned in the beginning, when you see the Rangers or the Navy SEALs come in, you know, they're more direct action, you know, blow the doors off, you know, do what they need to do and leave in 30 minutes. You know, we're there for months. You know, my longest trip in Afghanistan was 10 months, and that was in the middle of nowhere. We had tents, but, you know, we're in a small compounded area, and there's nothing. You know, there's no one coming out to save you within, you know, 15 or 20 minutes or 30 minutes. And then on the other side of it, in Colombia, I worked on the coast, on the western coast of Colombia, where there's absolutely nothing. And it was me and at one time one other uh, special forces operator. and. In, you know, in a city where you stick out completely, you're trained in their military, you're trained in their Marines, sometimes their police, and you look around and you're like, wow, you know, this is, this is what a movie's made out of. Two guys running around a city of 300,000, you're reporting, you know, once a week to the U.S. Embassy, and you're just on your own. You're coming up with, you know, schedules, you're coming up with training for the Colombian uh, Marine Corps you're coming up with things to do with them, you know, by, with, and through. That's, you know, our big motto. It's so different from one extreme to another where you're going from, you know, South America to Afghanistan. But, you know, you're kind of still doing the same thing, trying to make their country better. Was there ever a moment when you were talking to a local over, I don't know, I'm thinking Afghanistan, a chai tea, everyone's English is limited. Your past two was probably not great. Like, you know, we could, barely, <laughs> we could barely communicate, but yet there's that level in which there is a human exchange. Did you ever have something like that happen where over some chai tea, you learned that one of your Afghan army guys, uh, favorite actor was Mark Wahlberg? Well, you'd be surprised. Like we're in the middle of Afghanistan on one of the trips and um, we hear a bunch of music playing. We're like, oh, okay. And as we're getting closer we notice it's in Spanish and it's reggaeton music. And these are, Colum- and these, these are, you know, Afghans listening to it. 
And you just look at it, you're like, this is how much America's influenced some of these people who've never, you know, they don't speak English, you know, most of them don't have TVs, but they're on a cell phone listening to reggaeton music from, from like, you know, Puerto Rico or something like that, you know. <laughs> but that's the stuff you look at and you're like, you know, I'm going to remember that for the rest of my life. Yeah, no doubt. I once had a buddy tell me that, uh, there was a, there was an A&A guy and he was looking at his sunglasses and my buddy was wearing the Ray-Ban aviators. Finally, the guy like wanted to try him on and he puts him on and he says, I have the need, the need for the speed. Wow. Some, some <laughs> Top Gun reference, huh? <laughs> He's quoting Top Gun. I was like, that is great. That movie has made it around the world. Uh, I mean, you see it all the time. I mean, there's just, you, you'll be in the middle of nowhere and people will just, you know, come up with something like that. And you're like, wow, you know, if anything, you know, it makes you laugh a little bit. And then, cause you know how it is out there, you know, in the middle of nowhere for months on end and humor is what gets you through most of it. Honestly, you know, you got a bunch of jokesters and that's usually what keeps us going. Yeah. And I was going to say to hear them joke around each other, you'd be surprised that to know that they're all or, or, or that they're all really friends and they're really close because the jokes we always gave each other on the ship were like, <laughs> oh, I bet they were bad. I'm sure they is like that oh, just yeah. barely scratches the surface of what we do. We give each other re- like mean nicknames and uh it- it's <laughs> good stuff. Uh Let's talk about the day that you'll never forget. When I say your story is one of sacrifice, not enough words can go into say the kind of sacrifice that you've had to make. But man, when you talk about the injuries from that attack, um, permanent paralysis from a spinal cord injury, TBI, you know, you gave what part of a kidney and part of, you know, other organs for our freedom. Tell me a little bit and unpack that day that you'll never forget. It's funny that we have the interview today because today's actually my live day. So this was the day I got injured eight years ago. Is actually today. Um, so, you know, the story's real long, but I'll kind of just throw a couple highlights out there. The biggest thing is me and my wife were getting a divorce. And I, I say that now and it, it's not bad because we're still together. So that this actually 100% saved our marriage. I basically went to Afghanistan. I volunteered on a Friday at five o'clock to go. And like two weeks later, I was in Afghanistan. And Although I, I wanted to get away from the situation, I knew it was wrong. But one of the best things that I had going for me at that time was my best friend, First Sergeant Andrew McKenna. He was going to be at the same base I was going to. And this was the first time that we have actually been deployed together. Same base, same time, and everything. So I was like, no, it's not going to be bad. You know, I'm going to be working in an office, which, you know, no, no soft operator wants to work in an office. But eventually you got to pay your dues to the man. So I went there, you know, for the first two and a half months. It was okay. It was different. You know, you're working in the staff level with, you know, a two-star general. And then on August 7th, um, I had, it was about 10 o'clock at night. I was talking to my wife and I told her, I go, Hey, I got to run to the office. And usually around, around seven o'clock, I didn't go back in there. I was like, look, guys, you guys are the officers. If you want to stay here all night, that's fine. I'm not doing it. You know, I got things, you know, I got to still have a life here too which meant really going to the gym. So wherever that night, I went back to the office and all of a sudden, um, I got knocked to my knocked to the floor on one knee. And I knew that we had just been hit by a vehicle-borne IED. You know, at that time, 
I was part of a five-man uh, QRF force, quick reaction force. Uh, and then my best friend, First Sergeant Andrew McKenna, he was the other uh, NCOIC of a quick reaction force. And he was actually in his room when the when the VBID went off. So he had to fight his way all the way back to gather guys. Luckily, I was right in the main area. So, you know, once once I got off the floor, um, and this is, you know, like 10 years of dust everywhere, you know, and this is a fortified, pretty good site. Um, everything has collapsed, flipped over all the tables. You know, I grabbed my stuff, grabbed my weapon, and I grabbed one of the NATO guys that was with us, and I grabbed one American major, and I, you know, put him in place. I was like, look, you guys have, you know, your weapons. You're going to have to guard the back door, and you're going to have to make a life-and-death decision. Whoever comes through that door, you're not going to have a lot of time to figure out if they're, you know, one of us, one of the NATO guys, or, they, you know, they could be an insurgent that got on the base. And I basically said, all right, man, I got to go. So I grabbed, you know, my rifle, you know, my body armor, my helmet. But I, I could hear the gunfire inside the compound. And uh, as I, I looked at my watch, I go, okay, I want to give the other four guys about 30 seconds to get here. And as I went out the hallway, I seen a line of people just lined up. And they really had no direction. No one was taking charge. And, you know, I was in a master sergeant, E8. So I'm like, all right. So I grabbed three guys and I looked at the fourth guy and I go, hey, look, the next either special forces operator comes or the next ranger. I said, tell them I got three guys and I'm going to sound a gunfire and, you know, eventually either get there or fight their way there or figure it out. That's where I'm going to be. And, you know, I grabbed these guys and as soon as we left, we could hear gunfire grenades, but it wasn't too bad. And I know that sounds kind of crazy, right? Oh, people are shooting and throwing grenades, but it wasn't wasn't really to the point where you thought, oh, this is going to be really bad. So as I got there, we came up to where the entrance was. And as soon as I got there, there was an insurgent running through. Stuff was on fire. The truck was still burning. And as he was coming through, we we eliminated him. And as he fell, he was super close. He was like maybe 15 feet from me. And me and the other guy were looking. So we re-engaged him and he blew up. So we, we started to pull in and we got hit with, you know, screws, ball bearings, rocks. Luckily he was, he was face down. So it just, it came out the sides and stuff mostly. But at that second, I knew I was like, okay, these guys got suicide vests on, you know, they're, they're here for the real deal. You know, they're not here to fire a few rounds and run out the gate and, you know, live for another day. They're, they're here to, you know, do as much as they can. So as that happened, we, we began receiving more fire, fire and grenades. But at that time, my best friend showed up. It was him, one Navy SEAL, and two infantry kids. You know, those 11 Bravos, the ground pounders. And I told him, I go, hey, bro, you know, one guy already eliminated one guy. He had a suicide vest. These dudes are here for real. We have to take the breach back because we don't know if they have follow-on forces that have come come through the gate. And because the vehicle was 2,000 pounds of explosives. So it blew everything up. The poles, the ramp that comes up and down to stop vehicles from getting in, that was completely, everything was gone. So I told him, I go, hey, look, suicide bombers, if, if we don't hold them here, they're going to get into populated areas and it's going to cause a mass casualty. We got to hold, we can take back the breach. And he goes, put down, lay down some fire and I'll take me and my three guys. We're going to try to flank around them. And because of the situation or because of the how the base was, you couldn't really do like a wide flanking maneuver. So I look back at him, I go, hey, bro, it's time to earn that special forces, you know, hazardous pay. You know, trying to earn 375. You ready? And he started laughing. He goes, shut up, man. You're such an idiot. 
And uh, I go, all right, man, and me and me and the 11 Bravo that are the one guy I had, we started firing it up. And um, he, the Navy SEAL, the two other guys tried to flank across the street. And as soon as they did, all hell broke loose. Basically, there were four dudes on the other side of a barrier. And they were just basically baiting us in. They knew what we were going to do because of the limited area that we had to work with. And as soon as they left, me and the other kids started, you know, firing, firing the insurgents up and it was on. They, they pulled out like a light machine gun. They started hitting us with, with grenade after grenade after grenade. And I pulled back to reload and I look over like 10 feet and here come two people running back. But I'm kind of confused. I'm like, who are these people? And I look over and all of a sudden, they come back and they're like, they're dead, they're dead. And I'm, then it hits me. Those are the two kids or the two guys that were with my, my best friend in ADV SEAL. So as they went across the street, my best friend was shot six times. The SEAL was hit with the grenade. And then the other two kids, they came back. So now I got guys like getting it after us, like really getting it. I got two guys in the kill zone and I'm like, I'm thinking, dude, that's my best friend out there. And even if it wasn't my best friend, you know, it could have been you or anybody, anybody. I'm not going to leave them out there. So I start looking, and I'm, I can't even see them because it's dark the way they went. I don't really have a good eye where I can tell kind of where they're at, but not exactly. Not that I didn't know what to do, but I was trying to figure out the best way to retrieve, you know, two 200-pound two, men, you know, plus another 100 pounds of gear on, try to drag them somewhere and get them to safety, plus they'll take care of the insurgents. And, and take back the breach. And I'm down to me and one guy. I start looking and I see four, four guys coming in a good stack coming down a wall. They were just, they weren't running, but they had, you know, good muzzle awareness. I was like, okay, those are our guys. So I went back and luckily I had two grenades. I was able to put them right where the insurgents were. And I'm pretty sure I probably eliminated two guys right off the bat, but there were still two, at least two other guys still, they, they slowed down the rate of fire but they were still throwing grenades. And so we fired them up again and I watched four guys able to grab my best friend, McKenna, and the other guys with the seal and they pulled them back. And I'll be honest, that was probably the worst feeling I ever had in my life because I knew that I couldn't do anything for my best friend because I knew if I did try to help him, and not keep pushing forward to the breach and try to take it back, more insurgents would have the opportunity to come in. So, you know, as I see my buddy being pulled away, I'm like, you know, hey, bro, you know, I'll see you on the other side one way or another. At that time, I had a group of guys come up, and these were just random people, you know, and two guys were actually, these two were civilians. So I go, all right, look, we got to flank these dudes. I hit them with grenades. We got to get around them somehow. We're going to try the other way. And as I look down, they only had pistols. And I'm just like, where the hell are your rifles? And they said when the, the, the V-bit hit, it was so hard that it knocked over all the weapons cages where they had their weapons. So all their, all their like, you know, M4s, anything heavy were, were locked up and you had to have at least your pistol on at all times. So I'm like, bro, I can't, can't have you flank with me with pistols. So about that time, some random guy came up and he had two rifles. He goes, Hey, Master Sean, I found these rifles. And it was actually my best friend's rifle and the Navy SEALs rifle. 
when they had been shot up, they had dropped in the streets. So some, someone recovered them. So I took them, I gave them to these two guys, and I look at them, and I, this is what we're going to do. There was an RG33, which is like a really heavy-duty, up-armored, you know, six-wheel vehicle. But on top of it, it has a 50 cal or a Mark 19 grenade launcher. You two, I'm going to fire these guys up. You guys are going to get to the back of the vehicle and open it, get in the vehicle, and turn on the called the crow system. It's basically a computerized screen that's connected to the 50 cal machine gun on top of it. So as I look down at these guys, one of them says, hey, Master Sergeant, we're not allowed to shoot enemy combatants with a 50 cal. And I'm just like, are you kidding me, bro? These dudes are rushing us. Like they're getting it. I'm trying not to cuss, but at that time I was, I was getting after him. I was, I was screaming at him. And there was a corporal there and he goes, Master Sergeant Vera, I will shoot anything you tell me. Again, the infantry guy, right? And I go, I'm going to step out and start firing them up. You guys are going to go through the back. And the other guy who didn't want to shoot the 50 cal, I go, you're going to be the driver. And then the other guy who was a corporal, I go, you turn it on. And as soon as you guys are ready to fire, open your, open the driver door. So I know, and I'm going to, I'm going to run around, run across like 40 feet, get on there. I'm going to direct the 50 cal where I want you to shoot. So they get in there, they open the door. Me and that other kid, we start firing it up and I run across. I get onto the RG33 where luckily I have the door protecting, you know, at least from my groin up. So if I get hit, it's going to be in the legs. I get up there. Sure enough. I mean, they have a good beat on the door. They're, you know, they're hitting the vehicle. And I tell that, that kid back there, I go light him up and he hit him with the 50 cal. And we, we, I did call the mad minute for a minute. I had him just strafe everything in front of us. I told him, all right, stop, stop, cease fire. And I don't really hear a lot. I said, hit it again. And I hit him again for about 10 or 15 seconds. And I go, all right. So I jump down and I run back across. I run back and I grab these guys, you know, the guys with just pistols, not head rifles. And I go, this is what we're going to do. We're going to get behind the RG-33. And as he goes forward, I'm going to have him traverse his, his 50 cal, maybe a foot off the front of the vehicle. And he's just going to shoot as he goes like a mile an hour and shoot everything in front of them. And as it creeps forward, I tell them to start spreading out. And if there's anything that needs to be shot, you know, eliminate it. So as that happens, we get up there. I realize, like, this breach is huge. It's, like, as wide as the house. I mean, I I need more people. I need vehicles. I need all kinds of stuff. As that happens, I start going back and grabbing more people. It's it's just, you, you don't know... How many people are in front of you? You don't know if they're going to bring another vehicle. So as I go back there, I'm grabbing guys, and this kid shows up with a 240 machine gun. And I'm like, all right, good. We're getting some guys up here. So I put him there. I go, hey, stay stay where you're at. I'll come back. Don't let anybody go anywhere else. Stay here. Make sure nobody leaves. He's like, okay. So I run. I take some guys up there. I put them in, in, in position. And then as I'm getting ready to come back, I'm thinking this like 18 year old kid has a 240 machine gun pointed in our direction. I haven't told him much more than, you know, you're going to have a quick second to realize who's who. So I go, all right, I know, I know for us, uh, we use a certain word to let a person know it's like a challenge and password. You know, you say it and they echo it to you and they're like, okay, I know that's an American come forward. So I did the one we use. And, uh, and special forces and he didn't answer. And I'm thinking, Oh my gosh. So I used the one the infantry uses and sure enough, he responds. 
So I'm like, awesome. This kid paid attention somewhere. So as I run up to him, I go, okay, this is what you're going to do. I'm going to re- I'm going to yell that word every time I come up. Make sure you keep everybody here. Don't let nobody move. I will call that word every time I come back. He's like, okay. So I'm going back and forth. By now we have two other vehicles that show up from inside the base and I'm able to push the original vehicle out and he goes north on this road. I push another vehicle out and he goes south. As I, as I go to each of the vehicles outside the gate, I give them, you know, like their instructions. You know, if anyone comes down, you're going to shoot in the ground, you're going to shoot in the engine block, and then you're going to smoke the vehicle. And again, I get the whole thing where, oh, we can't shoot people. And, and I'm just, I'm losing my mind because I can't believe these, these guys are saying that. And I'm like, you're shooting a vehicle. Shut up. You know, and then there's, there's like a kid in the back. He's like, I'll shoot anything. That's all these, all the younger guys were. They're like, no one's getting in here, Master Sharn. I'm like, okay, okay, just, just pay attention. So as soon as I get ready to leave, an Afghan armored vehicle starts coming towards us with, with blue lights. I've seen that trick before. So before I could even get back in the vehicle, this kid, you know, he shot out the ground, shot out the engine, and the guy stopped. And they're like, hey, Master Sergeant, there's a vehicle sitting right here. And it, was, it looked like it was running. I think what it was is the vehicle that they came in on, the insurgents. So I'm like, smoke it, shoot it up. So... I start going back, <laughs> and this is the weird stuff you see, because it remember it's 10 o'clock at night. As I'm going back, I see this guy in helmet, body armor, weapon, flip-flops, and shorts. And they're, like, bright. They were either white or blue. I don't remember. And I'm looking. I'm like, well, just pulling security. I'm like, hey, bro, make sure you, you stay on that, that point right there. Don't let no one come down that road. He's like, roger that. You know, this guy probably just, he was probably sleeping. Ran out of his room, grabbed, you know, grabbed what he could. And now he's out here in like flip flops and, you know, shorts. So this goes on for about a good hour or so. I'm going back and forth. I'm getting people and around that time or to the, uh, the jock. So old school, you know, I, I took a piece of paper out, drew everything where it was, you know, vehicles, personnel, you know, how many people. And as I ran up to that, uh, the initial spot where I was, where that guy with the machine gun is, I run up and I go, hey, who's this? And I hear a guy go, Pat. And I go, Pat. And he goes, it's Pat Colleton. And it was like my really, really good friend. Now he's my best friend. And me and him, we, we'd served on the same ODA together. Five. So I've known this guy 20 years. And I always tell people this. The thing with Pat Colleton is every time you're near him, Everybody gets shot, but everybody survived. And as soon as he, I, that went through my mind, I got shot up. There was a line of cars, maybe 15 feet behind me and two insurgents. The first guy that I eliminated when he came through, he was actually the third guy, two guys that already came through. So these guys got under a vehicle and they sat there for almost an hour and a half, just, just watching. So I remember it being, I thought I got hit with an RPG at first because they were so close and it was so hot. I could feel the heat on the back of my, on my neck and ears and stuff. I don't know if I heard it first, felt it first, or, or felt the, the heat and light first, but I ended up getting shot once in the left ankle once in the left knee and then twice in my back. And one of the, the last bullet hit my spine um, about chest level right here. And that's the one that dropped me. 
and I was and I was laying there, and my my face was actually on my knees because I had already snapped my spine. There's rounds going everywhere, all over the concrete, all over the road. Luckily, Pat ends up grabbing me, pulls me out by my shoulder, gets me behind a wall, and they return fire. Um, and right before I got shot up, I had a, a Marine captain and another Navy field checking vehicles. So these insurgents knew they were about to, you know, be eliminated as well. And that just happened to be the one time I stepped outside of the barrier. There was a wall there and I just ran up real fast and, you know, they, you know, they got it. So as I got shot, the Navy SEAL and um, the Marine, they fired, they killed one guy. And then the guys close to me, they engaged a second guy like five minutes later because they couldn't figure out where he was. Um, but they ended up eliminating him too. And after that, they pulled me to the, uh, to the aid station and it took like six dudes to, to carry me, you know, dead weight, you know, a lot, you see the movies where a guy just grabs a dude and, you know, carries him off. That's, it's nowhere like that in real life. As I get to the aid station, the doc at that time, he's like, Hey, Master Sergeant Vera, can you hear me? And I could hear him, but I couldn't answer back. And I heard him say the dreaded words, he needs a chest tube. And I'm like, Damn. And I've done a lot of medical training where I've given chest tubes before to Afghans, you know, who are on their last leg, they're done. And, you know, they're all juiced up. And when you put that chest tube in, people wake up. I mean, they feel it. And I was like, one of two things. One, this is going to hurt. And two, I'm, I'm probably dying. If they're already putting in chest tubes, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much done. I hear the doc, okay, the chest tube's in. And I'm like, I didn't even feel that. Ooh, I must be juiced up on some meds right now. You know, and this is all happening within, you know, four minutes from me being shot. So I'm in the aid station and I passed out. And when I woke up, I was already on a litter and I had a fentanyl lollipop in my hand. Most people don't know, but fentanyl lollipops are just given as, as basically for triage. And our medics, what they do is if they have like four guys who are injured, They'll take those lollipops to their mouth or to their hand and they'll work on them, put the lollipop in their mouth. And when they pass out, your hand's going to fall. So you won't over medicate yourself. And then when you're passed out, he goes to the next guy, to the next guy, make sure you're good, put it back in your mouth and just keep going. So I, I knew I'd look and I was like, Oh man, I got a fentanyl lollipop. And I looked at it and you're not supposed to put them in your own mouth <laughs> by any means. And I go, I must be now. And I put it in my own mouth. And uh that was it. I, I woke up um a little bit in Germany. And then I woke up basically two and a half months later in like a, a coma, medically induced coma, just to let my body try to recover. But the birds that came in, and I didn't know this until later, they had tried coming in for uh for my best friend Andrew multiple times. Um, but I didn't realize they were getting fired up from the city because this was in Kabul. So these birds were coming in and insurgents were lighting it up and they pulled off like four times. So the same bird that came in for him, they were able to get me on on the bird, uh, on one of the birds with him. So we, we both flew out of, you know, our last place in Afghanistan together to Bagram Airfield. You know, it's not how you want to leave with your buddies, but I, I, I kind of feel a little better knowing that we kind of flew out together uh, because we started our SF career together. You know, it's a little comforting that I knew he's after I found out that he was with me in, in one way or another.
it was one of those things where as a soft operator, you know, that's, that's what you're there to do. What an amazing story of survival, amazing story of brotherhood with guys you may or may not have even known that well uh, from the first day to your last day, your best friend and SF comrade there going out on the same helo. Um, just just an amazing story. August 7th. So incredible for you. And I know that there's a day out there for so many veterans like your live day and That is why you earn the Purple Heart, the Silver Star, the Bronze Star. That day exemplifies why you deserve those awards. And they came at a heavy price. Of course, the spinal cord injury resulting in paralysis and loss of vital organs like a kidney, part of your liver and intestines. Master Sergeant, man, you are... You are truly a hero. You are credited with saving multiple lives during that attack. And, uh, you know, we're better for it. Say what you want about the political angle, about why we even get into wars. It's once we're there, the guys like shine and really make a difference for all Americans. So I can't thank you enough for unpacking that day with us. Uh, let's talk real quick as we get ready to introduce building homes for heroes and Andy patiently waiting in the wings. Um, How did you end up now? Obviously, transition. You go through a bunch of medical things. I've interviewed enough combat injured veterans to know, you know, fast forward through like a couple years and there's finding a new normal for you. Obviously, wheelchair, obviously training, obviously getting your life kind of back. But when you first came across building homes for heroes, what was the scenario there and how did you guys end up meeting? This is where and the reason why I would never trade my injuries to go back to being able to walk or anything. And and a lot of people, sometimes I don't know if they want to believe that, but I wouldn't change one thing right now. Except, for, of course, if my best friend could be alive, yes, that. But if they said, you know, you can go back and redo everything, I wouldn't do it. And And here's the reason why. Building homes for heroes, you know, I always say they didn't give me a house, they gave me a home. And they gave me an extended family, which which all all of them there, you know, the the people who work for Building Homes for Heroes, all the volunteers, all the other home recipients, these are my family now. And it, it came, it was kind of funny how it happened. It was on like Christmas Eve in uh, December of 2015. My wife, I was in a hospital, like, you know, just laying there doing nothing, you know, probably, you know, juiced up on meds. And I get a phone call from her. She goes, baby, there's an organization that wants to give us a house. And I'm like, what do you mean give us a house? I don't know. Can we do that? You know, I'm all, I'm all juiced up. I'm like, just come back and talk to me later. So, so she calls, she comes back and she goes, there's an organization. The, the, the president, his name's Andy. He called and talked to me for like 30 minutes. And I'm like, I don't know. Can we even do this? So I called, I had a representative from SOCOM with me. Um, he was like my case manager. I call him and he goes, Hey, George, is everything okay? I'm like, no, everything's fine. I think I go, I have an organization that wants to give me a home. And he goes, Oh, well, there's a lot of issues with that because you're still active duty and there's a lot. I mean, he goes, well, who, who is it? And I go, it's a guy named Andy Pujol and it's building homes for heroes. And he's like, Oh, building homes for heroes. Yeah. Go ahead and say yes. You'll take the house. And I'm like, we're good. He's like, I'll, I'll make sure everything's good. And then I started researching stuff and I found out what Building Homes for Heroes was. And although I, I looked at it online, I totally forgot 
And Andy, I'll let Andy talk about this part, but he had been there like three times and I didn't even remember. I had no clue I'd ever talked to him until we went to dinner one time and it was a really nice fancy restaurant. Everyone's dressed up in like ties and we're just in regular clothes in this beautiful restaurant. And I'm expecting, you know, Andy to come in with, you know, to tie, to suit, you know, but no, he comes in just how he's dressed now. A regular guy, just loving and giving everybody hugs and, and talking to everybody. But, you know, I look at Andy like even more than a father figure because I've seen what he's done and what he's done not only for my family, for other families. And you don't even know how to thank him. And I still don't know how to thank him. So Right on. Well, that is doing God's work. And with that, let's say hello to Andy Pujol, founder of Building Homes for Heroes. And, um, you know, Andy, just unpack with me a little bit about the genesis of Building Homes for Heroes. I understand that uh, it began on 9-11. And share with me a little bit about that. Well, first of all, you know, I just want to say, you know, it, it's an honor to be with you, to be on your show. And uh, I'd like to thank you for your military service. And for your amazing podcast, where you continue to um, just inspire so many people. Um, but, um, you know, on top of that, you know, I, I have to reel back just for a moment, because with everything that George said, you know, at that moment, you know, I've heard this story so many times, not from George, but from Pat Collington and, and others. And, you know, for you know, so much planning, organization, coordination, control and communication that to go on with so few high-powered weapons available and the adrenaline, you know, on a scale of one to 10, probably running around a hundred. Um, it's just amazing what, what they were doing at that moment. It, you know, the conversation George was talking about must have been screaming. It must have been boom, 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 one thing after another, just trying to move as quickly as you can and, uh, to survive and, and somehow succeed. And they did all that. And, um, you know, I know George is a Civil Medal of Honor recipient and the, uh, some of the other guys with him, but they saved many lives, maybe dozens, maybe hundreds. And uh, I hope one day he receives the Congressional Medal of Honor. Back to your question. Yeah, it all started for me um, when 9-11 hit. Um, I was I was uh, horrified. And, you know, like so many others. I was in a state of shock. Um, I made immediate plans to have my children pulled out of school. They were in fourth and third and sixth grade. I made plans to move them out east because a lot of my family members are police officers and firefighters. And then I made immediate plans to go in. I knew from the get-go that I wasn't going to do anything else. And I can tell you to this day, it was the most... Uh, unimaginable moment in my lifetime. I was the only car on the road and I was driving into New York City and seeing the city pitch black. And every once in a while, a dozen police cars would pass by, a dozen fire trucks. And it was just so unnerving. And so I made my way in. I loaded up my truck with supplies made my way in, talked my way through, and the guys let me through. And the you know, first time I ever saw the Midtown Tunnel with high-powered weapons. Um, and they said, you'll never get through the next checkpoint. I got through about seven, eight checkpoints later. 
made my way in, made my way all the way to ground zero. And uh, I was, I stood right in the middle of ground zero. And I worked in the bucket brigade and pushing steel canisters, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds um, to the point where I was exhausted one night and sat there and kind of stumbled on some rubble and realized, you know, as I fell backwards and I actually hurt myself. And I gathered myself and sat on some steel, but it's not like falling even on rocks. It was, it was steel everywhere and jagged and just, um, I, I'm not even sure the right word. So intimidating. And as you looked around, all you saw was fires burning everywhere. And people forget to this day that the fires burned for a hundred days. Hundred days, and everybody was working in that environment. There was smoke everywhere. There was gas and soot everywhere, no matter where you went. And after I don't know nine, ten, eleven, twelve, eight hour straight hours of working, I sat down in the rubble for a rest, and I actually broke into tears. I'm looking around because all I could see was faces covered with soot, covered from head to toe. And I started talking to God. And I I said that I I knew that more people would die in the search and rescue while we were here or after or many years after. I knew then. And I think most people there knew then. But it didn't matter. Everybody was there to try to save one life, like written in the Talmud, to save the world entire. And that was the spirit. That was the moment of those firefighters and those police officers and those EMS workers. I'll never forget them. I'll never forget their faces. I'll live with it to the day I die. You know, I realized I saw for the first time in my life true heroes. Was it at that moment then that you realized that you wanted to engage with veterans or how did you then go about transferring that spirit to helping veterans and providing mortgage-free homes? I sat there in the rubble and uh, I made a promise to myself there and then that I was going to serve our country for the rest of my life. And I prayed for um, God's help and God's support and God's wisdom. And, and that's how it all began. And, and now we've reached today what I believe to be a miracle. How do you go from sitting on the rubble on 9-11 to saying a prayer to wanting to do something for the greater good for this amazing country to our 343rd home ahead and for all of our veterans and families alike? Um, you know, I, I, I know there's a miracle in all of that. So did I know it was for veterans at the time? No, but I had a funny feeling. You know, I, I was saying to myself, this is not going to end here. The spirit that was there to save our fellow man, I, you just could see it and feel it. And then you knew it, that everybody in the country, no matter where you went, we were one country. We were one family. We were one people. There was nothing that could divide us. It had nothing to do with religion, nothing to do with color. We were one people. 
And we lasted that way for many, many, many years. And uh, it was a beautiful, beautiful to see. Yeah. And I think sometimes the press pulled us all apart, politics probably, but, it, you know, it shouldn't. I wish it never would have happened because it was so beautiful in so many ways. Yeah. And with both your stories, Master Sergeant Andy, you know, from tragedy comes triumph. It really was amazing. I wish we could hold on to the esprit de corps that we learned from 01 to 02 and we felt as Americans. I wish that everybody came together the way you and soldiers you didn't know that well bonded together in the midst of just hell on earth in the form of that attack on your base in Afghanistan. But uh, either way, we have gone on and you two gentlemen represent what it is like to truly overcome and to do great things. Can I ask, how on earth did you get involved in building houses, though? Were you a builder by trade before this? We could probably go way back to my uh, late teenage days where I was homeless, lived in a warehouse floor. Um, showered the dirtiest shower in the world and, and woke up every morning to help move furniture for a living and then ended up practicing to drive a tractor trailer. And I, I became the number one driver there. Um, I loved what I was doing. And then nearly 15 years later, I owned a trucking company with 33 tractor trailers. So I've been building things my whole life, but not homes. But when the, when I saw that the veterans were coming home injured right away in 2004, I jumped in. Um, and I said, I, I sat to get, I sat with my family member who since died from cancer from 9-11. We both contracted cancer at the same time. And he, and he was so big and strong. He was watching out for me. Uh, I, I said, what's the toughest thing that we can do? What's the hardest thing we can do? I, I don't want to do something simple. So we started helping other charities. We could never tell where the money was going. And then we both looked at each other one day and said, let's build one home. And he had construction background. So we built a home for a veteran who was paralyzed from the neck down. And I'll never forget it to this day, our first home. I, I met the family and I was amazed at how much love was, there was there. But I thought, how can this family ever survive together? How can they stay together? through the rest of their lives. It's just too much. And we built this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful home. And they were, they loved it. And he had to move his wheelchair by his mouth. You know, he went to the shower and started crying because he could run water. He could shower himself for the first time. And, you know, he came out and they were so happy. And we spent so much time with them. And now it's, 18 years later, well, maybe 16 years later, and they're still together, and their children are grown up and now having grandchildren. So it's a beautiful thing to see, and, you know, um, just another great memory, one of so many. Um, you know, Kirsty Ennis, you had in your show recently, what a great show that was. We gifted Kirsty her home. Um, and then, of course, George, his home, and and uh, now we're actually doing one home every 11 days. So it's something we're proud of, but we're doing far more. We're doing, we're, we're building homes. We're, we're helping like George with programs with ac academics and athletics. And we provide financial guidance. And George is becoming a genius in financial guidance and physical wellness and mental <laughs> well-being. 
<laughs> no, that is that is that is so incredible. And what I love is it is really an answer to a prayer to God from and Ground that, Zero. And that's so why that's why it, I always tell people like it's not like you're just going to get a house because you get you know one that's not a house it's a home. You know when you have somewhere that you you're not paying mortgage, you can kind of like okay I got my home base I'm in my patrol base you know I'm good. Now what else do I need to do to be successful? You know. I'll tell more. I don't, Andy won't say as much, but they have helped so many people. Like I'm big in adaptive sports. That's how I, you know, deal with my demons. So, you know, they helped me train for um, the Invictus games and the warrior games with equipment, with money to make sure I'm, I'm able to do this. The other girl, Christiana, who I, I just found out that you met, I mean, he helped her, you know, get out there and try to summon each of the highest mountains, you know, on all the continents. There's a gentleman here near me named Joel Tavera where, you know, he's burnt probably 90% of his body. You can't see, you know, he can't, he can barely move his hands. Um, he's an amputee and he graduated college, you know, up in the panhandle. There's another, uh, another guy who just ran a hundred plus miles in Death Valley, California. He's blind and he can't hear very well. You know, he did that. Oh, and by the way, him and his wife has EOD delights. They make chocolate and fudge, you know, a blind guy who has his own cooking show making fudge. Those are the things that, and I never badmouth any other organizations, but I don't think there's a lot of organizations that do that. Just don't give you a home, a house. You know, they give you an extended family. And I know that anybody who's received a home from Andy calls Andy right now and they have an issue. Andy is going to do whatever he can to help them with that issue and get it resolved. And it's not necessarily a money issue, you know, financially. It, it could be whatever. Maybe they need help with, you know, talking to somebody. He's going to find someone for them to talk to. He's going to do everything in his power to help whoever he's given homes to. And, for example, during COVID, people were losing their jobs. They couldn't pay rent. They couldn't afford groceries. You know what Building Homes for Heroes does? There's a, there's a program we have in Building Homes for Heroes, the Ambassadors. And Christiana, she runs it. We basically took... All the people who've applied for homes, who have homes, we split them up like a hundred a person. And we went through and called all these people and just to say, Hey, how are you doing? You know, what's going on? What kind of help do you need? And there are some people like, you know, we don't know how we're going to pay rent. We don't know how we're going to put food on the table. Building Homes for Hero would send them, you know, money that they needed. They would help them pay rent. They would get food on the table. Those are the things that. You know, you're not going to see on a TV. You're not going to hear on a radio ad. But those are the things that Building Homes for Heroes does for us and, 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 and many, many others. And they don't ask for anything. It shows, you know, what a true American, you know, spirit is, what people like myself and many others went and sacrificed everything to include your life because we know that there's an America like that. And we know there's good Americans like Andy that just wants to help out, you know, his fellow man. Let's end right there because you said so many great things, but Andy, I can't thank you enough in this day and age as a journalist where I've covered all different angles of the veteran experience, that transition, that getting back to your new normal, whether it's after a traumatic spinal cord injury like you, Master Sergeant Vera, or whether it's just getting out and not knowing how to find your way, it takes that 360 degree perspective to make somebody feel great again, to make their life good. And whether it's a veteran or whether it's just being your own brother's keeper here on planet earth, you're doing it in the exact right way. 
that's living in the light, that's doing God's work. And to me, everything I've heard from both Master Sergeant here today and from my good friend, Kirstianis, mountain climber, you know, six of the seven highest peaks on planet Earth she's climbed on one leg. Um, I'm just so glad that Building Homes for Heroes recognizes those unique challenges and is there to meet the veteran where they are living. Andy, in our final couple minutes here, can you tell me, how can I get involved? How can I help further your mission of building homes for heroes and what's on the horizon next? Well, thank you so much. Building homes for heroes. You know, I, I, I've never taken a single penny in 18 years now. We're doing far more with far less than other organizations. And if you could reach out to buildinghomesforheroes.org or connect with us on social media and whatever you can do to help promote us, tell our story, ask me to fly in and meet you and talk to you, uh, whatever you'd like me to do, just by the grace of God. And, uh, and you know, I, I guess I'll end it with by the grace of God, go I. So thank you very much, Phil. Well, I can't thank you both enough. Andy Pajol from Building Homes for Heroes, from a life-changing moment at Ground Zero on 9-11 to helping uh, what is now going to be the 343rd home to be delivered by September 11th in 2023, and uh, the milestone to hit the 400th home being delivered by early 2024. I know you're going to do it. And uh, Master Sergeant George Vera down there in the greater Tampa area, man, just uh, so glad to hear that your life is what it is. Uh, we began this call before I started recording, just hearing about your daughters, hearing about, you know, your grandkids on the way, hearing about a life well lived and a family unit and has thrived, uh, in the years since combat tour deployments. I just can't thank you enough for everything you've done and the riveting story of your alive day. Man, I wish I had a little bit of bourbon and to sit around a campfire with you and hear more of that in greater detail because, uh, yeah, you, yeah, you special for Forces guys have some heroic stories and you sir you are just absolutely top notch yeah thank you for for having us here and uh, giving building homes for heroes the chance to come on and and talk about you know what their mission is uh, you know my my mission's over so i'm good now now i just try to help them out as much as i can and you let me know when you're ready for that cigar and bourbon we'll make that happen yeah, man, because I'll be down in Siesta Key later this fall. I absolutely love Sarasota County, so I can't wait to come down there and uh, see your beautiful Florida Gulf Coast. You, me, Andy, George, Bourbon, love it. Um, <laughs> let's just wrap here, and I'll, I'll sum it up for us. But if you want to make a difference in the lives of veterans and an organization that's just doing God's work, check out buildinghomesforheroes.org. Thank you so much. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most-watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. 
This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.